I'm so glad you're joining us today. If you haven't had a chance to meet, um, I'm Sean, one of the pastors here. And if you're new to MCC Online, this isn't what things always look like. For, for a short season each year, uh, we do church outside and that doesn't really work well for our online stuff. So while we do that in person outside, we do this online a little bit differently together. Um, before we get rolling, I uh, wanted to extend an offer to connect with you um, or for us to be able to pray with you, to be able to pray for you this week. And, and so the easiest way for you to do that is to text the word Monmouth to 97,000. Uh, so the way you do that is you put Monmouth in the text field in the message box and then send it to the number 97000. You'll get a menu back and from there you can follow the prompts for Connect Card and we can connect or at least we can be praying with you or praying for you this week. I, I really do look forward to praying with you and for you, and maybe even getting a chance for us to connect sometime soon. So let's get into it. You know what it is, it's Matthew, woohoo! Everybody's so excited to get back to Matthew, and today we are in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there, and let's just begin. Matthew 19 verse three says this, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? First off, don't miss this. Look at the motivation behind the question. The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. There are a host of questions we can ask of this passage as soon as we recognize that single little detail. We could ask stuff like, what was the test? What would have been the right answers according to the Pharisees? What would have been the wrong answers? We might even ask, who are the Pharisees? Who else was answering this question and why was it different than the Pharisees or different than Jesus? What was the cultural ethic of the Jewish people of Jesus' day around marriage and divorce? What about the greater culture? Since Judaism was just a tiny corner of a massive Roman culture. Well, first, let's begin with taking a look at the Pharisees and what their dog in this fight was. The Pharisees were what we might best imagine as um, what you'd get if you um, took a church denomination like Southern Baptist or Assemblies of God or Nazarene or, or one of the multitude of others that we have in our country. And they also formed into a third political party in the U.S. They were very much religious leaders and they were very much political leaders in the first century Jewish community. You can see why they asked the question, not, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Because you see, that's a moral issue. But it's a legal issue. But they ask it as a legal term, so that makes it a political issue. If you know just enough about ancient Judaism to, to be dangerous, you might ask the question, well, why is this a trap? Why would the origins of Judeo-Christian ethics 
permit divorce for any reason at all. Now, it's important here to pause, to, to be really clear. The, the way the question is framed could, in, in English, as we're reading in our Bibles, it could appear to be asking two very different questions, uh, depending upon how you put the emphasis on the sentence. You see, they're not asking, is there any reason at all, as in, can you give us even one example where it's okay? That is a question that assumes almost every, if not every single reason for divorce is not permitted according to their view. The question in Greek is, is really clearly asking the exact opposite question. <clears throat> can I divorce my wife for just any reason I can think of? Right? Uh, that's the question they're asking. Can I just say to my wife, honey... You burned the toast this morning. You're out. Divorce, right? For, for much of the 20th century, groups have fought in the name of Judeo-Christian ethics to prohibit divorce except in the most extreme cases. And sometimes not even then. Uh, my grandma, uh, years and years ago, was not permitted to divorce her husband, her very abusive husband, Instead, after six children, they were permitted an annulment. And if you understand the conditions required for an annulment, you can understand why after six kids, that was an absurd, unfair, legalistic, and ridiculously burdensome requirement. So it may seem a bit goofy to imagine that the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian ethics would ever have a discussion that even considered the possibility that divorce could be for any reason at all. But the truth is actually even stranger than that. You see, in Jesus' day, there were two groups, uh, two camps in regards to what we might call as Jewish ethics. Right? The two camps taught their followers how to interpret a host of practices and commands found in the Jewish scripture. Stuff like, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? And these two camps would, would flesh that out very helpfully for their people. These two groups were named after their founders, two competing rabbis, and called the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai. Right? Um, the, the question is birthed in the contention between these two houses or um, schools of thought. Right? Uh, and, and they're all based around the reading of one single verse in Deuteronomy 24. So let's read it so we can see for ourselves uh, what the contention was. It says this in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. The question is simple. The, the answer is incredibly complex, but the question is simple. What qualifies as indecent that justifies displeasing? The house of Shammai, the more conservative branch, they said, 
only the most grave things counted. The House of Hillel, the more liberal branch, was far looser. They said, literally, whatever. Hillel himself was reported to have said that if your wife burned the toast one morning, remember? If your wife burns the toast, that that is sufficient grounds for divorce. Rabbi Akiva, a religious leader who lived only a generation or two after Jesus, late first century, uh, was from the house of Hillel. And he said that even finding another woman more attractive than your wife was a sufficient cause for divorce. Or, 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 or to be more accurate, as he described it, if you were displeased that your wife was not as attractive as another woman, divorce. In addition to this controversy around marriage and divorce, the Jewish community itself found itself at odds with the Roman culture that really engulfed and surrounded everything about Judaism in its day. That it engaged in a, in a form of sexual ethic that, um, that would easily garner an MA rating for a TV show today and would only be played late at night. Now, now if we think there, that day, we... We might, if we were there that day, we might think, oh, whose side is Jesus going to pick? The conservative Jewish view that says only the gravest, or the liberal Jewish view that says for whatever, or the pagan view that says who cares about marriage? Instead, Jesus does none of those things. Instead of defining the exemptions, he begins with the design. Look at what he says in verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus says this. Jesus says, let's go back to Genesis 2 and ask the question, how did God design it to be? You see, there's a significant thing that happens between Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 24 that informs how we read Deuteronomy 24. And that thing is Genesis 3. It's what we call the fall most often. <clears throat> It's the place in humanity where brokenness enters into everything. It fractures all of human existence. One of the great consequences of the fall, in fact, one of the causes of the fall, is that we too often are asking the wrong question. The Pharisees ask the question. They ask the wrong question. They ask the question, what can we get away with? What is permissible? How far is too far? How much is enough? Or, or, or what is the minimum I have to do to get by? But Jesus answers the Pharisees with a different question. He asks them this question. How did God make it to be? What is best? What brings wholeness and healing? How can I serve? How can I submit to one another rather than subjugate? one another. So let me ask you this. What question do you ask more often? Maybe not about divorce. Maybe about your finances. 
maybe about your job or school or or moral issues or or politics. You see, if your questions you ask begin with the emphasis of where's the boundary, you're asking the wrong question. You see, when your eyes focus on the boundary, the boundary itself becomes a fence that contains us, a fence that breeds resentment in, in us. A, a boundary questions are, are, are what fuel, boundary questions are what fuel and hold up legalism and judgment and shame and division. Boundary questions almost never align our bodies with God's design and most definitely do not align our hearts with God's design. In, uh, in college, I had a professor, uh, Carlos Gupton, and we were covering this very passage in Matthew 19, and he offered us a question from a real-life ministry experience he had before coming to this college to teach. And one day, he sat in his office, and one of the elders of the church came bursting into his office. Without even a greeting, he began to speak. And he says this, Jared slept with a woman from work. Jesus said that you can divorce in the case of marital unfaithfulness. And I want to know, will you support me when I tell the elders that I have advised Mary that it is okay for her to divorce Jared? He paused and he asked us, what would your answer be? We just read the passage. What would your answer be? Today, what, what would your answer be? Luckily for us, Carlos was a very wise man, and he knew that there was more to the story and could sense that the elder wasn't sharing at all. As it turned out, there was significantly more to the story. As it turned out, Mary, who was the elder's daughter, had left the church and pursued a pretty wild life right out of high school. At 20 years old, after, almost, after being absent for almost two years, she came home to announce to her parents that she was marrying Jared. No one in Mary's life thought much about Jared or, or to be honest, that it was a really wise decision for them to get married. As Carlos tells the story, it only took a few months into the marriage for Mary to begin to recognize it herself. You, you see, after all the fun and the newness of it, Mary wanted to settle down she wanted to settle down from the party life. She wanted to buy a house, have kids, do a little bit of adulting. Jared, on the other hand, well, he still had a few years of partying left in him. And so one night, Jared is still out, who, who knows where, out at a bar somewhere. And uh, Mary drives over to her parents' house, and she arrived at her parents' house in tears. And she began to imagine what spending the rest of her life with Jared would look like. And she realized what, what other people had tried to tell her for so long before she got married, that she made a mistake. And see, at this point, she wanted out. She wanted out of the marriage. However, having grown up in the church and, and wanting her parents' blessing, she didn't know how she could get herself out of this marriage that she'd gotten herself into. So, so her dad asked some probing questions, and, and he asked, you know, has he abused you in any way? Has he threatened you in any way? Has he hit you? Anything? She shook her head. No, over and over and over again. And then the elder had an idea. 
At this point, Carlos told us he, he sat up a little taller in his chair and on the other side of Carlos' desk, and proud of his creative solution he devised for his daughter. And he told my professor, I told her to deny him, to deprive him. You, you know what I mean? Uh, eventually, he'll get so frustrated that he'll look for it from somewhere else. And Carlos, last weekend he did. So I told Mary she can now divorce him. When, with anything in our lives, we fix our eyes on the fences, on the boundaries, on, on how far can I go, on, on what is the minimum I have to do to pass this test, it, it, takes, us, it takes us to weird places. We develop weird ideas, and, and we do weird things, and we advise other people to do weird things that don't look much at all like Jesus. Things that are void of compassion and grace and kindness and patience and restoration. Things that are, that are void of Jesus. But instead, when our eyes turn to the goal, to, to, to what is the best becomes a journey to wholeness. When the Sabbath or, or rest, for example, becomes what I cannot do, it becomes a burden. But when Sabbath or, or rest becomes about searching out what this is meant for, discovering the gift of rest, it becomes life-giving and restorative. In fact, one commentator writing about this passage in Matthew 19 he said it this way. The passage opens with crowds following and Jesus healing. The teaching that follows should be seen in the same light. Following Jesus leads to healing. If these words that Jesus speaks are not healing medicine to our wounds, then we have not yet rightly understood them. You see, a conversation around divorce for most of us, for many of us, is, is filled with messy emotions, with, with trauma and scars. And I want you to see, as Jesus sees, that divorce is always messy. If, if, if what you hear in Jesus' word is shame and, and condemnation, as the commentator said, you have not yet rightly understood the words of Jesus. So I want to invite you to be courageous with me and lean into the words of Jesus. Lean in until they serve as healing medicine to the wounds of our broken world and to our broken lives. You see, when, when it comes to Jesus' teaching on divorce, there, there are a few things that I hope you hear, especially in contrast to the religious leaders especially in context to the political leaders of, of, of Jesus' day and of our day today. Their question is about permissiveness, but Jesus' response is about brokenness. The Pharisees ask, when's it okay? But look again at Jesus' response. Here's what Jesus says. He, he, he says this in summation. He says, one plus one, the two become one. One plus one equals one. You see, twice he uses the phrase one flesh. How can you separate one flesh without creating fractions, without creating wounds, without creating scars? If you were a person 
who had to navigate a divorce, whether as a Christian or not, whether for cause or not, if you, if you were a child of a divorced parents, don't miss what Jesus is acknowledging here in you. What you went through was unnatural, painful, brutal. The, the pain that you're experiencing, the fear that you still carry, the questions that you still wrestle with, it, it isn't just something that you're going to get over and get past. There's been an actual ripping that has happened in your soul. The Pharisees want to know, what's the return policy on a wife? But Jesus says, you know what is happening? The very tearing of flesh. But the good news is, the good news for us today is that Jesus is the great healer. In an often misrepresented passage, it says this of Jesus. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' flesh was torn too, so that he could bring healing to the torn parts of your soul. That is the good news of Jesus today. That the tears, the scars, the brokenness, and the anger, and the hurt, and the bitterness that you've experienced from flesh being torn in you that Jesus can bring healing and hope. And if what you hear today is condemnation and shame, you have not yet rightly heard the words of Jesus. Also look at this. It's bigger than just your spouse, but it's easily seen in this passage. For Jesus, people are partners, not property. The moment a person becomes a means to an end, we have disregarded their dignity and the image of God in them. There's a phrase in verse 4 that many of our English translations don't do great justice to. Uh, you've heard it, right? It says this, you've probably heard it at a wedding or something or in a movie. And it says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they use the word there, joined, because in verse 3 it says, join. And they see a thematic connection. The problem is, is that in verse 3... The root word comes from the word glue. For this man, reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and it literally says, and be glued to his wife. However, in verse 4, the root word is different. It is a word Jesus only uses one other time. There, in that passage, he says this, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What God has yoked together, Jesus is saying. Jesus is yoked. These are images of purpose, of co-laborers. You see, in this conversation, Jesus is purposely pointing out the wife is not property to be disposed of when she is no longer needed. But, but she is a co-laborer. And thank goodness she is. Because Paul tells us elsewhere that we're to understand our place with God as seen in a husband and wife relationship. Thank goodness that wives are called to be co-laborers, that we are not property or, or a pathway to God's end, but that we are partners with God, co-laborers with God. A, a friend of mine pointed out that it isn't just people on screens that we objectify. You see, by the nature of objectification, that moment a person becomes a means to an end, a tool to accomplish something, we have objectified them. 
dehumanized them. We've robbed them of their dignity and value in this world. They become no more to us than, 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 a, than a cow is to a cattleman. Whether it's a boss or a, a co-worker, a significant other, a kid, a parent, a neighbor, a politician, a celebrity. As soon as we cease seeing them as image bearers of God, they become no more than property for our advancement or our pleasure. When we do, we objectify that person or that relationship. It becomes no more than an object. When we treat the church or, or other believers this way, we miss out on the rich and beautiful gift of being co-laborers. And instead, we become consumers of the commodity of spiritual guidance. However, every time Jesus sees someone, he sees them not as property, not as a pathway, but as a partner in reconciliation. As soon as, in this circumstance that we're talking about here in this passage, your spouse becomes a pathway rather than a partner, you will ask the question, do they please me or not? And in that moment, the end is coming near. In fact, there's a, there's a really odd and subtle and even subversive thing that Jesus does in this response. You see, a lot of times we think of Jesus and divorce and think, oh, Jesus said it's, it's okay if you have an affair. That's what my professor's elder thought. But that isn't what he says. The Pharisees come and ask, when can a man send his wife away? But Jesus' response, he says this, when the woman chooses to leave. But look at it. The, the question isn't, when can a spouse divorce? But when can a man divorce his wife? Even in this messy, ugly human experience of divorce, Jesus is giving the power to the powerless in this moment. When can a man, Jesus says, send away his wife? Only when the wife walks away. Only when the wife chooses to leave can the man send her away. That is shocking and powerfully subversive to the cultural norms of this day. So is divorce God's good plan? No, it's, it's a tearing of flesh. Is it messy and painful and ugly? Yes. Is, is it sometimes necessary? Yes. Is divorce, if you've gone through a divorce, engaged a divorce, is it a salvation issue? No. Are there more reasons than just an affair that justify divorce? In fact, yes, even Paul gives us examples elsewhere throughout the New Testament about other reasons that may lead to divorce. If you're being abused, should you pursue a divorce? Absolutely. We love to help you in any way that we can. Absolutely. But what should we be most noticed in this passage is not where Jesus lands on the ethical spectrum of divorce, but how he sees people differently than the Pharisees. The issue Jesus is confronting in the Pharisees is not about divorce, it's about how they see people. The issue Jesus would challenge in you and in me is not about divorce, it's about how do you see people.
Do you see people as, as property that can be sent away? As a pathway to a means, as an obstacle for you getting what you want, as a, as a product to be consumed for your pleasure or for your comfort? Do you see people as just a caricature that you can mock or destroy or, or as an enemy? Or do you see people as an image bearer of God, as co-laborers in the ministry of reconciliation, as a possible partner in the restoration of creation, in the restoration of lives? For you married folk, let me ask you specifically, how do you see your spouse? As means to pleasure, to comfort, or even to purpose? Or as a co-laborer, as a partner? How do you see your co-workers, your, your neighbors, your kids? It should make us all wonder, reading this passage, are we asking the right questions? In all of this, in the world we're experiencing, this world that we're a part of, are, are, we, are, we, are there people that I've been praying away and, and God has been inviting me to partner with? Who are the people in my life that, to be honest, it's just easier to keep at a distance, to use when needed, and, and, and to send away when I'm tired of them? Maybe it is time for us to reevaluate our whole view of what it means to be in community, to have community, to change the way we think of it as abundantly more than a commodity we trade. The biblical word here is repent. To repent of seeing people as a means to an end, even as a means to community. But instead, to see people, see people as the end, to savor the gift of the presence of people, even the ones that annoy us, the ones we disagree with, the ones that displease us. Do you see them? I mean, really see them? See, Jesus sees something beautiful and good in them. The opportunity through the invitation of God to be co-laborers in the restoration of all things that is broken, even in our marriages. Maybe today. Maybe today you need to ask yourself, have I myself accepted the invitation of Jesus to be a co-laborer? If you haven't, we'd love to pray and to talk with you, to, to, to connect with you. And you can do that by texting the word Monmouth to number 97,000 and filling out the connect card. But what is it? How do we see people? See, Jesus sees people as precious and valuable gifts, as image bearers of God, not as a means to an end. So what is it, where in your life do we need to repent of using people for our gain, for using people for our pleasure and our comfort and our advantage, for using people even to give us purpose and instead turn our hearts and eyes not to the boundaries, but to the center, to what is best, to Jesus today. May we be a people whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, who listen to his invitation to draw near to him, 
who walk side by side with one another and who invite others to walk closer with Jesus each day. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you today that you are a God who sees us. We thank you today that you are a God who invites us to draw near to you. We thank you today that you are a God full of forgiveness and grace and mercy. That even in our rebellion that you chase after us, that there is nothing that we could have done or engaged in that will keep you away from us. Lord, we love you. Would you soften our hearts to the image bearers around us, to your children who you dearly love. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.